This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Good afternoon. It is 2 p.m. Central Time on June the 5th, and this is Altitude Adjustment. We'd like to welcome a special guest, Ms. Shelley Kinau. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am really looking forward to this. Uh, for me, education is uh, a big topic. And so um, when I was in college, I, I dated a young lady who was uh, going into um, EM, EMR to teach EMR students, edic. Uh, education, ed, educatable, yeah, educate, mentally retardable. Yes, which we are so far beyond those terms now. <laughs> and and yeah. that was the the difficulty in naming the show was I was I was afraid to use the wrong terminology because it is important, especially in this area. So, what are some of the terminologies that we use? Uh, we used to use special ed and. Um, 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 like I said, educative EMR and um, special needs. So, you know, where are we in, in our in form of our, in our terminology? It's an interesting question, and there really doesn't seem to be one right answer. Depending on sometimes the the different groups that you talk to, some people are fine with special needs. Some people are very not fine <laughs> with saying special needs because they say, well, everybody has needs. So why do you have to delineate these? Um, some people don't like the term. Um, there's this thing called ableism now. And so the, looking at things and using the terms. Oh, did I disappear? Yeah, that's my my doing there we go okay <laughs> yeah. um so you know if you say um like they're differently abled or um you know sometimes that's upsetting when i wrote my book um then that released last fall i i left the some of the terminology in that was used when the people that I've interviewed were going through school or were going through the process in their lifetimes to show the difference of where we've been and where we are now. Um, I, so I like to always try to put the person first. So many, many people do not like to hear an autistic person. They would prefer to hear a person with autism um, down syndrome, they, you know, there, there's a, um, and it's oftentimes people will say downs and, and that's not even an actual thing sure. because down is the name of the person that the syndrome is named after Correct. it's so, um, so there's, there's just so much that we have become such a, uh, I don't know if sensitive is the right word, but just very cautious about how we speak and what we say. And you can tell that I'm trying to also be that way. <laughs> very right sensitive, now yes. I also don't want to offend anyone, but so often I feel that no matter what I say, someone isn't going to be happy with the way that I'm saying it. I know that. Um, my book was reviewed by a pretty prominent special education organization. Um, and the reviewers said that my language was antiquated because I said things like a resource room or a self-contained room. Hmm. But that's what they were called when I was teaching. And so they denied having my book as there were three reviewers and there's more to it, but, but that was some of the reasons that they denied 
recognizing my book to be part of their organization is because of some of that terminology. And, and I said, well, to be true to the families and to be true to the time frame that it happened, I'm leaving. That was my choice. I mean, my editor even talked to me about certain words in the book um, because I did. I had one of the students who was told he was retarded. That's not a word that we use. But at the time that that happened, that is what was acceptable. Exactly. And if if I I felt that if I changed those words to what the words that are acceptable today, how can I be sure that those are still going to be the acceptable words in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years? You can't. Exactly. You can't. So that's where I, right or wrong, felt it was important to leave those words in, leave in the ways that parents described situations. It's not ways that we would necessarily describe a situation today. Mm-hmm. And again, certain groups of, I, I always taught my students, if they were someone who was um, eligible for an individualized education plan or for special education services, that they learned differently. I haven't been dinged by anybody on that one yet. <laughs> so I, I try to you know, stay with that because I do, I truly believe that everybody can learn and how we get there or how that person gets there or the, the level of what they learn is going to be different. And that's across the board. So I, I know that was a very long answer to your question. But sometimes a long answer is necessary. <laughs> so since you've brought up your book, I did want to uh, show that to our, our viewers and for those people that are listening to the audio only. The title of the book is Those Who Can't Teach. Uh, and the subtitle is True Stories of Special Needs Family. Nerds. That's, that's no, needs. it's special needs. Special needs. <laughs> you know, I should have looked at that when I typed nerds <laughs> and realized, no, that's wrong. True subtitled True Stories of Special Needs Families to Promote Acceptance, Inclusion, and Empathy. Yes. I'm gonna look at it. It looks like it it looks like needs from from my position, but it's it's well, how about fun. how about thank you very much for pointing that out? <laughs> yeah. I, saw, I saw needs, but then I know what the word is too, so I was automatically leaning that way. Yeah. So when did you write the book? Uh, the book was published in November of 2020. It oh, was okay. about a three-year journey from start to finish, though. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and it it and the title too was difficult. My editor and I went back and forth, you know, as to to be succinct, but to try to also encompass what the book was about. Mm-hmm. And my editor happened to be a parent of a child with autism, an adult child at at the time of her editing my book. And so I felt like if, if she was okay with the title and having special needs in the title, Mm -hmm. that hopefully that was okay. (laughs) That makes sense. But as I said, you know, there, there are groups of people who don't want special needs as their terminology. So I, you can't please everybody. So I have to go with what i believed was the best thing from to represent me and the people in my book so right now what is the most acceptable general term besides special needs i don't know i'm not sure that there is one (laughs) (laughs) um like i said there's this ableism so they don't even want to say differently abled um I personally don't care for disabled because if you add dis in front of a word, Mm -hmm. it means it doesn't work or it does, you know, it it's so to say that someone is disabled to me means they're not able. And that was, that was the farthest thing from my experiences with all the individuals that I've ever worked with as a special educator 
and the families that I interviewed for the book. Mm-hmm. But the, but there seems to be more of a push right now for saying disabled. So, so one of the terms that you used, uh, which caused me to, to do a little bit of research was IEP, Individual mm-hmm. Education Plan or Program. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about IEPs and, and how they come about and, um, do, do, do parents like ask for these or is that just a part of the school curriculum? In general, teachers or, well, school districts or families can request for their child to be evaluated. And it is a long process. The wheels of education do not move quickly at all. And so a family, if they feel that their child isn't succeeding at the level and they've, they've tried different aspects and, and, and different avenues, if they still feel that there's something underlying for their child, they can request that special education evaluation. If a school district has a feeling about a student that is that same, something's going on here besides them maybe just being a slow learner or, um, you know, another phrase that I hate is when people, when I hear people say that my students are lazy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that will make my blood boil faster than almost anything. (laughs) But that's, that's me personally. Mm -hmm. Um, And so once whichever side puts in the request for the evaluation, then a team of people meet, including the parents, and they decide, okay, what do we know about the student? What can, what do we need more information on and who or how are we going to get that information? And then that's also when the parent would give their permission to go ahead and do the evaluation. And those are called different things here in the Midwest. Most all of us call them domain meetings or pre IEP eligibility meetings or pre IEP meetings. Um, So once that is done, then somebody comes and they do some assessments with the student. And then once they get all of their assessments done, and and there's a variety of people that can be involved with that. Um, The parents should be involved. The gen ed and the special ed teacher should be involved. And then a school psych, some, I I say school psychologists, those were always the people doing the assessments in my area, but it could be a special ed director or someone, um, somebody who's able to give the assessments and be able to interpret the results. So all of those people give their data and their information. And and of course the student is involved at that. And then they have another meeting where initially they determine whether or not the child is eligible. And I want to make something really clear at this point that educational eligibility and medical diagnosis are two very different things. Just because a student is found to be eligible for special education services does not automatically mean that they have maybe ADHD or autism or some specific learning disability of some kind. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side of that, just because a child is diagnosed with autism or ADHD, that will not automatically qualify them for special education services. And there's, there's a lot of confusion about that. And so I, I try to make that as clear as I can um, because just because you have one doesn't mean you automatically have the other one. So then once a child is, is deemed eligible and not all children are deemed eligible, sometimes you have that eligibility meeting and it's decided that no, for whatever reason, and the whole team decides based on the data, nope, this child is not eligible. So then that's that's it for a while. And then there's like some things that could happen, which I'm not going to go into now. Um, But then once the child is found eligible, then an IEP is written. Hang on one second. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. Sorry. No, um, that's my, quite all right. So let's let it be known. Family didn't you... know that I was doing this live today, and um, 
brought another dog home for my dog to play with. And so they were both just getting all of my attention. So oh, I'm okay. so sorry. I apologize for that. No, I thought um, it was children. I, you, are you... <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's dogs. dogs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was um, children. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. My, my child is 21. She's the one who brought the other dog home. But um, yeah. She's, she's so, the one in trouble after the show. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so then once the, the eligibility is determined, then either at that same meeting or at another meeting down the road, then an IEP is written, that individualized education program. And in that education program is present levels of performance. So everything that the child can do, but also the things that need to be addressed by goals and objectives. So those deficit areas is what we call them. Um, but present levels of performance are supposed to have strengths as well as their weaknesses. You take that information of those deficits and you decide, okay, if I'm putting it in here, it needs specially designed instruction. And those are what I'm gonna write the goals about. And then you put, you, you as the team, again, you decide all of these things. And the amount of time it's going to take to work on those goals is the amount of time that the student then receives as their special education services. Um, and then once a year at a minimum, that team of people will get back together and review and change and update for the next year, whether that's a, a school year or, you know, like from a January to a January timeframe. And then every three years, that full evaluation process happens again to make sure that the child is still eligible. Many children, especially young children, will be given an initial eligibility of developmentally delay because oftentimes it it does catch up so to speak mm -hmm. and so maybe by the time you know they're eight or nine or ten they can graduate out of special education that is our goal as special educators is for our students to graduate i call it graduating but to to be able to exit out of the plan um, and then that information is supposed to be disseminated once you get that IEP written to all the teachers and everybody that's involved with the child. And then everybody works together to provide those accommodations, uh, the special education teacher or a therapist, depending on what the specific specially designed instruction areas need to be, then provide what that child needs. And then that's the whole process in a very small nutshell. <laughs> There's a whole lot more details to all of that, but I was just I trying to give you the overview. Sure. I appreciate sure. it. So uh, does, who sets the standards for a special education in the country? Is it more, is it, are there federal guidelines and standards or the state as well? Yes, um, to both. So we have the federal education law, which came into play in 1975. It was called Public Law 94-142 or the Handicapped education for uh, the, the word handicapped was in there. I'm trying to remember exactly wording, but anyway, so that was in 1975. There've been a few revisions in 1992 or 93. Um, they had a big overhaul where they added in um, more students because originally when this law was written, the idea behind it was we had some, ridiculous amount of students that were not even allowed in public schools. They were institutionalized. It was wow. like millions of students. And so the, what you said, Leon, about the EMR, um, there was the educably mentally, it was EMH and then it went to EMR. So educably mentally handicapped, educably mentally retarded. Um, and then we had trainable MR and then we had severe and profound and mild, moderate and um, and then we had specific individual categories. In um, 92, they broadened that a little bit more. And then the last revision of the federal law, which by the way, is now called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So IDEA for short was in 2004. And that is where you needed to be a highly qualified teacher in order to teach. You had to um, they put in a purpose for the IEP, which is to provide free, appropriate public education with related services and special education 
while meeting the unique needs of the individual to prepare them for further education, employment, and independent living. And that's a part that is often not known or forgotten um, because oftentimes I have been in meetings with my clients and myself as a special education teacher was told many times, we only have to focus on what happens during the school day. Mm. And that is not entirely true anymore. So it's very important to know that purpose and findings. Um, so I will refer to the federal law, but I'm not a lawyer. So anything I'm saying is not legal advice. There are some parts of that law, Warren, that the states can then add to. Um, one of the biggest ones is timelines. So earlier when I was mentioning that you would have your eligibility meeting and then you could have another meeting to write the IEP, mm -hmm. there's a timeline for all of that. There's a timeline for when you put in a request as a parent. There's a timeline for when the school reaches out to you and says, we would like to do this. So there's all kinds of procedural safeguards in place. And that's kind of where I come in with the families is, a, is every family at every meeting is offered a copy of or a link to their procedural rights and safeguards. Mm -hmm. And I don't tell my clients anything that's not already in that packet, but it's like if you have a lease on a car or the mortgage for your home, do you actually go through and read every page? And if you do, do you understand every page? So because of my experience, I do understand everything that's in there. And I have read all of it in separate times. I've never sat down and read a whole packet because they're like 10 to 20 pages, just the procedural rights and safeguards. And the IEP can be another 10 to 50 pages. Wow. And both uh, the IEP is a, is a legal document and it is supposed to be followed to the letter by the school district. So when that doesn't happen, then there are procedures that are put in place by districts, state, and the federal government as to what the procedures are to make that happen. And that's called a due process hearing. That's the, that's the final thing. You could also have mediation and state complaints and all those other things too. Did you have something, Warren? Well, are, are there a lot of complaints against schools concerning the IEPs and how they're uh, handling them? They're getting to be more, uh, especially after the pandemic and all that occurred as far as how we were educating everybody, to be honest, but especially those people who learn differently um, because the, the, the remote settings, the virtual settings, a lot of that was impossible for many students to learn sure. or to attend, you know, for several hours at a time. It's really interesting that when you think about kids and their screen time, you know, if they're playing a game or they're watching a YouTuber or, you know, whatever, their attention seems to be able to be held. So the thought was, well, they're going to be fine during virtual learning because they're going to be looking at a screen the whole day. What we failed to recognize was we're not as entertaining <laughs> as right. a video game or a YouTuber. No matter how hard we try, mm -hmm. we don't have the equipment and all of the graphics and everything that we, that, that a game has or that a YouTuber would have, you know? So um, I say we failed to recognize that I'm not really, that's maybe not true, but it was the best way with what we knew what to do at the time. So I, I'm hoping that we have learned and, and my, my real hope is that we don't have to do that anymore, but <laughs> if we still have to, or if we, if we have to go back to that at some point that we have learned better ways. So as far as, as state complaints and due processes, I don't know the actual numbers, but I know that people contacting me to request those 
needs of a state complaint or mediation have increased greatly in the last six months. And so yeah. um, we had had a conversation and you had talked about the school systems um, trying to face this challenge. What do you see as some of the hurdles that the school systems are uh, not excelling over in order to meet the needs of these children? The first letter of the IEP and the law, IDEA, both of that, those I's stand for individual or individualized. Mm-hmm. And we too often forget that when we are educating our students. And that I think is the biggest problem that I have faced as an educator and now as an IEP coach or an education consultant, whatever whatever title I use, I interchange those kind of like I interchange program and plan for an IEP. Um, because so often we, we say, well, this is what we're offering. This is what we're offering our special education students. You go into this room. Well, that that doesn't remember the individual. Um, well, this is what we're offering. We're offering, you know, virtual learning because that's the safest. Well, it might be the safest, but, and maybe for 85 or 90 out of a hundred children, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But you have to figure out what you're going to do for those other 10 to 15 individuals. And so a lot of schools did a lot of things and a lot of those things were wonderful. But when they had already done a few things, they still didn't want to do more. And I would say, remember what the law stands for. Remember what the I stands for. I'm sorry that all these wonderful things that you're doing still are not working for this child. You're still not providing an appropriate education for this particular child. And that is what you are required to do by the federal law. So um, we, we train our teachers uh, at these uh, expensive universities. We, we burden them with a lot of debt. Um, I'm not going to get into that. But um, are we training them to be the best advocates in the classroom for these students? In my opinion, no. Um, in, in my opinion, part of our problem with our full education system is how we train our teachers. We have, and, and we would say this um, as educators, that those who educate can, and those who educate, those who can't legislate. And oftentimes we get the, like the federal law, the, within the federal law is a percentage of funding that the federal government is supposed to provide. And they're not. Within guidelines of what our colleges are supposed to provide to our teachers, it's not very good. But yet we have a government saying, well, all these general education teachers because of inclusion are going to have all kinds of different students in their classrooms. But we haven't trained our general education teachers to have all of these different people in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. And so, and even some special education people, when they've come out, I've heard them say, you know, I didn't know how to write an IEP. I got my first job and I, and I was said, I was told here, you know, here's your stack of IEPs for the year. You, you know, you've got a meeting in three days, go write your IEP. And I had no idea how to do it. Now I was very blessed in the university that I went to. I had a due process hearing officer teach me how to write education or the IEP and understand education law. That apparently doesn't happen everywhere. So you have a lot of people that are coming out and they don't know how to write the IEP. They don't know how to modify and accommodate. They don't know how to collect data. And all of these things are super important for special educators. But then you have these general educators who maybe, I think you take 
approximately 40 to 50 classes in order to get a teaching degree or a special education teaching degree. And out of that 40 classes, let's say, one, possibly two, are dedicated directly to special education information. That's it. So we've had this whole population of teachers coming out since 1975 that are being, and I hate to use the word forced, but that is basically what's happening. And these teachers are, I think, at some underlying level, whether they realize it or not, I think they're fearful because they don't have the training. And teachers have to get professional development um, in the state of Illinois and, and all across the country. Um, we call it professional development hours or, or um, continuing education units or credits in order to maintain our teaching licenses. And so some of those teachers, after getting their degree, um, in Illinois, we have to have 20% of those continuing credits in special education. So still out of, let's, we need 120 hours. So you still only need 14 out of 120 hours every five years that touch on something regarding special education. And in a lot of the professional development that I've seen, because they didn't have a lot of people providing special education topics and professional development, they would have maybe five minutes or 10 minutes where they talked about, well, this is how you would modify this content for your special education students. Or this is how you would utilize this strategy with your special education students. And, and so we're, we're just not giving again, this is totally my opinion, <laughs> Okay. enough training and education. And we're not, we're not having a high enough standard. And I, I'm sure I'm going to get teachers that have come out of the system recently wanting to put me on a stake and burn me because <laughs> I, this was not, that was not my experience that our, our education standard of, of what you have to pass and, and the curriculum that you have to go through, it's not very rigorous. And oftentimes, we, to, in, in my opinion, I, I've, I've heard too many stories and I've seen too many people that I didn't think should really be teachers, but that's what they wanted to do. And so they went to school and they took the tests and they took the tests and they repeated the tests until they passed the tests. Mm. And then they became teachers. So I don't want to, well, in every profession, you're gonna have good people in your profession and you're gonna have bad people in your profession. So I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, I, I mean, I think our schools, our universities, like you said, we're, we're I mean, my daughter's a university student currently, and we're putting an awful lot of money into an education mm -hmm. that I hope will be beneficial for her. I mean, she's not going into teaching, but for the field that she's going into, I, I hope that it's eventually worth what she's had to pay for, what we've had to pay for it. So um, you, you are currently in a um, school district that uh, is not that the classroom size isn't that large. So well, the, the district where my daughter grew up, I'm currently not oh, teaching okay. full time, so I'm not in a district. Well, OK, so then I will come back to this question. OK. <laughs> um, what made you make the transition from uh, employed teacher to um, education coach? Um, as I said earlier, going through all those meetings and knowing how much information was being given to parents at these meetings, and then they would sit there and at the end, I mean, and, and I'll be honest, your, your initial meeting, you walk in and you could have um, multiple therapists. So you might have an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, a physical therapist. You'd have a special education teacher. You'd have a general education teacher. You could have... Um, a school psychologist or somebody, you know, representing somebody, uh, not representing a school psychologist or somebody who's able to uh, review all those assessments that I talked about. And then you 
have somebody who's representing the district who can make a decision as far as if a child you know, needs special equipment or if the child would need special transportation or um, a, a paraprofessional might need to be hired for this particular student or that classroom where the student's gonna go in. So basically somebody who can say yes or no, we have the funds to do that. So at least you could have seven people and, and then all of these people go over all of the information that they have found regarding your child and then, so let's say each of them has five minutes, which normally that's not enough time. So each of them typically have 10 to 20 minutes, honestly. And then they say, okay, do you have any questions? And the parents are so overwhelmed, they would just go, no. But you could, I could see it on their faces that they really didn't grasp what they were just told. And in a lot of cases, they actually told me later, I was very blessed to be able to work with many of my parents for several years and form very close relationships with them. And if it hadn't been for that close relationship, there would have been a lot of stuff that they would have had no clue about. And they didn't feel comfortable asking their question among this group of experts. Mm -hmm. And so they did feel comfortable with me to ask me one-on-one, -on -one, well, what about this? Or what does this mean? Or I thought this is what my child's IEP said. And so it was through all of that, that the last teaching position that I had, um, it actually wasn't my choice to leave teaching at that point. I had moved districts and they had, um, as a teacher, they don't have to give you a reason for not rehiring you for the next school year. So I was at a new district, first year at this new district. They came in on a Tuesday and said, you know, things are going really well. Here's your evaluation. And I was pleased with, you know, a, a, the evaluation score that I received. And then on Friday, they came in and said, we're not bringing you back next year. And it was at that point that I thought, okay. And I'm a, I'm a very faith-filled person. And so I just sought God and said, what do you want for me to do now? And it was then that I felt teaching was not my path anymore. And that it was time for me to, as, as the three of us talked before the session actually started, I'm a strong-willed person. And I've always been for the quote unquote underdog. And so it was at that point that I thought, I'm gonna go start helping the families. Under, this is a need and I'm gonna fill it. And then it was only after a couple of years and I realized what I just told you about the education system at the universities. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start working with teachers too, because as much as I knew, and I was somebody who was always in the law and very interested in it and was, had, you know, written IEPs for all those years, there were so many teachers that I realized didn't have that experience and didn't have that knowledge. And yet here the government was saying, you need to welcome every child into your classroom with open arms and treat everybody exactly the same, except you might have to do this accommodation or this modification or whatever for these however many students. So um, for two years, I really focused on the parents. And then for probably the last two and a half years or so, I've said, no, I, I need to help the teachers too because they, they need it too. So um, I, I normally try not to um, pick a particular target uh, with some of my questions, but um, previously there was this no child left behind mandate, uh -huh. um, but they didn't fund the, 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 the thing. Uh -huh. Did you, you know, what, what, what does stuff like that do um, to the morale of the people working, especially in such a specialized field as, uh, you know, working with uh, children that are having difficulty in a normal class setting? It makes it very tense. Um, one of the school districts that I was in in, in the last few years that I was involved with that school district, I actually started to learn about the whole budgeting process. Um, I'm in Illinois and our state was getting behind, not just the federal payments were behind, but our state payments were behind. 
And I started realizing that there were, for lack of a better term, there were buckets, you know, where you have a transportation bucket and that's all the funds that you can use for transportation. And then you have a special education bucket and that's all the funds you can use for that. And then you have a, um, I don't know what all the other buckets are, but you can only take out of your bucket. Even if three other buckets have an overflow, mm-hmm. you can't take from those buckets because each thing is lauded for specific expenditures. And the special education bucket had a hole in it. <laughs> it was at a negative balance. And yet we were still required to fulfill the law. And so we tried to, to do what we could. And this, this happens all across the country with all, all the teachers that I've ever spoken with. Teachers spend a lot of their own money in their classroom on their students. Yeah. Um, and, and then school districts are having to find ways, creative ways to fill the special education bucket or plug the hole at least so that the money is not at a deficit all the time. Um, but as I said, we were still required to provide that free appropriate public education. We could, we could be as a school district sued or have even more, have more funds kept from us, but then it's because it's intentional because we have a violation because we haven't provided that free appropriate public education and state complaints were filed. And, you know, there's, it's not like they just said, Oh, you know, whatever school Shelley's in is, is now not eligible because they haven't, uh, they haven't done it. There's processes to it, of course, but so the, the strain on what we required. And then, like you said, the no child left behind, there's a lot of legislation that looks beautiful on paper, but in reality doesn't work mm-hmm. or it might work in a lot of cases, but it's not going to work in all cases. And So again, when we started pushing for everybody to move forward, I had teachers that I worked with, with their general education students that were putting more effort into the student's education than the student was because they were doing everything they could possibly think of to keep the child eligible to move forward to the next grade. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what the intent of the law was, but that's how it played out in many places because of the lack of funding, because of the, the laws. And it, it's, it, that then trickles to the students because if a teacher is stressed, it's going to come out in their teaching. It's going to come out in their behavior plans with their students. It's going to come out in their relationships with parents. Um, Teachers have been on edge for a decade or more because we have become the enemy. You know, everybody thinks they can be a teacher. Mm. Every and and a lot of people found out in this past year that they could, but they got to do it without all the guidelines that teachers in public schools have. So yeah, there were a lot of parents that were teachers this year, and kudos to all of them that I I this was the first year that I've not taught that I haven't been sad at the beginning of the year that I wasn't going into a classroom. But what parents experienced was still very different from what a teacher experiences. And I, I give all credit to the parent. Like I said, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody, but what you got to do as a parent, you didn't have all the parameters that the teachers have. You didn't have the your administrator telling you well you have to do this i don't have any money for you to do this but you have to do it figure it out so it's a lot of those things are are, like i said they're good on paper but it's it's difficult to follow through and provide what we're supposed to provide Um, i had a question Mm Uh, the scenario with the buckets and the money, the way it's allocated, why is it so difficult to uh, realign those figures? Like, see, okay, we need more money over here and we have a little extra over here. Why can't the system 
uh, figure out how to correct those shortages? I think if I could answer that, I'd probably be a millionaire or a billionaire. <laughs> um, as I said, the, the, the wheels of education move very slowly. And I just, I think, you know, somebody has decided these are all the, all the procedures that have to happen. And, and, the, and I think in some places, people, like I said, they found creative ways to borrow from a bucket. Mm -hmm. But even if you borrowed from that bucket, eventually you had to put that money back or you were supposed to, Supposed to. you know? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess it, it's slightly different than your own personal budget because if you knew you had more gas money than you needed for this month and you wanted to go out to dinner, but your, your, your food money was gone, you could make that decision for yourself very easily. Right. But when you're dealing with hundreds or thousands and it's not your sacrifice that you're working on, you're working on someone else's sacri potential sacrifice, I guess that's why it's not so easy. Okay. That makes sense. But the other question I had is when you were talking about uh, the IEP being put in force to help the students prepare for the future mm -hmm. beyond school. When's the last time that's really worked? Because I'm looking at a lot of these young people now and they seem to be short of a lot of different um, skills as far as being that will help them be successful adults. And for that one, I think you have to look at your definition of successful. First okay. of all, uh -huh. um, and second of all, as I said, it's, you know, it's preparing them for further education, employment and independent living. And, and then individually thinking about what does that person need? Uh -huh. You know, because not everybody's going to go to college. Not everybody's going to go to the military. Not everybody's going to go to a trade school or go to a job or whatever right out of high school. So they have these things called transition plans that start here in Illinois, we start them at 14 and a half. I believe the federal law is, it has to be in place by age 16. And you, and by that point, you've spoken to the families and the student, if at all possible, and you've tried to figure out what does this person want to do with the rest of their life? Mm -hmm. And so then you um, have these transition plans where you can bring in outside agencies and talk about, you know, whether it's a community resource um, whether it's understanding transportation, if that's something in your area, if it's um, getting services of, you know, maybe the person needs somebody to help them take care of themselves. Or as far as their independent living, that's going to be in a group home. And so, you know, what, what resources do we find for that? Um, and so remembering that individual so I'm, I'm sure it's been successful. I couldn't tell you specifically an example. Overall, it doesn't seem like it's been successful because mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like I probably know what you're talking about. You know, when our kids are coming out of high school and college and they don't know how to budget and they don't know how to change a tire and they don't know where to go to get their oil changed or how to change their own oil and they don't know how to count back change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, there's system wide, whether it's special education or general education, Mm -hmm. Um, there are things that we don't seem to be doing as well as we had at one time. Exactly. And again, that comes back, I think to, well, no child left behind sounded great on paper, but then what we did was we forced people to be pushed along, even though they weren't technically ready. So we didn't we didn't allot for that. And, and it is, I think the percentage of special education students is um, like 15%. Okay. And I'm not even sure it's that high um, in our school systems. And when you think about, you know, out of 100%, well, that's a large percentage of the population that yeah. these laws are focused on to help 
So, you know, you're looking at 85% of your population where no child left behind is, is addressing really. Um, but then you added common core standards. And that was to try to level the playing field so that if you had somebody move from a district in Missouri to a district in Illinois in March, that they had already taught basically the same skills and to the same level. But what that did was create bigger gaps because you had people that were learning from the Illinois state standards and the Missouri state standards prior. And now all of a sudden they're both trying to learn the common core standards and maybe Missouri's were higher in some aspects and maybe Illinois had been higher in other aspects. And now we're coming to this common ground of here. So those kids that had been on the state standards previous, there was this huge gap of concepts that didn't get taught to a lot of our kids because of the switch from those state standards to the common core standards. The, that was something federal put out the common core. It was. That was during the uh, Obama years. Yeah. And it was, um, states didn't have to abide adopt. by the common core adapt. Thank you. Yes. Adapt to the common core standards, but there were financial incentives if they did. Um, but a lot of states never adapted the common core standards and some adapted them and have decided, oh my gosh, what were we doing? Why did we do this? And so now you've got this fluctuation. And I honestly think there's always been that fluctuation of what should be taught at what age and to what degree. And because we're always learning new ways of approaching things um, and new and better ways to teach things, we're, we're, we're never giving our students consistency from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. So this Common Core uh, program, is it still in effect now? And, mm -hmm. and what's happening with it? Um, the, the last, and I don't keep up on it since I don't have to teach those standards anymore, but I think there are several more states that have decided we don't like this. Mm -hmm. And I feel like some of the incentive, the financial incentive to adhere to them has gone away, but we still have our standardized tests. We still have state right. testing at the end of every school year. Right. And so I understand that we have to have a way to hold our teachers accountable to actually teach our students. I don't believe in using a standardized test to determine how good or how bad a teacher is teaching because there are too many outside factors that can affect mm -hmm. a standardized, standardized test score. And so we still, we still have to figure out a way, and I've not done it. I don't know how to figure that out either, but um, using standardized testing and, and for school districts in general too, you know, there's school districts who are losing funding because their students didn't score high enough. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm a very much believer of, we'll find out what the underlying reason is for that behavior. Um, behavior was an area that I've always been really interested in and behavior is communication. So if a school district is consistently not scoring high enough on those standardized tests, dig into that school district and figure out why. Is it that they don't have the materials? Is it that there's, you know, situations with um, moving around constantly so kids are in and out of districts? Is it curriculum? Is it the teachers? Is I mean, there can be so many reasons, not just, well, these teachers are all bad. Mm, sure, sure. So testing was one of the things that I wanted to get into. And, and he, I'm glad you brought it up. You, you almost pretty much have answered that question. Uh, I'm just thinking, um, with the pressure to teach two tests, uh, how does that impact? So in my mind, I'm thinking, that can't be good for special needs because it's not good no. for um, general education. So, so how does that um, impact the special needs 
community in the school system? Again, in my opinion, I think it's done damage because I have been seeing goals on IEPs written for students to attain a certain score on a standardized test. That is not preparing a child for further education, employment, and independent living. That's preparing them to take a test. We, we can't do that. It, I mean, to me, that's the most asinine thing to write into somebody's goal. I mean, Warren, you said you had been a postal worker before you retired. If you had to take a test to, and, and pass that test to a certain level in order to get a raise, what kind of pressure would that have put on you? Well, it would put pressure on me because I would want the raise. I would definitely feel a little pressure. Right. And if you didn't score well, your supervisors wouldn't get a raise either. So then what kind of pressure would that put on your supervisors? Oh, probably more. <laughs> and so that's what we're doing is we're putting this pressure on these. We're, we're putting adult size pressure on a student mm -hmm. and that's not fair that's the most unfair thing i think i can think of as far as it comes with education um i was never a great test taker i'm i had great grades in school but i was never a good test taker so if you put a standardized test in front of me and we had to you know i had the teachers telling me because we did I think ours was called the Iowa test of basic skills. And that really wasn't even what is considered like a standardized testing for the purposes of what they do now. That made me nervous. And I like bombed the whole thing, mm -hmm. but I'm an, I'm an intelligent person. You can ask me things and I know stuff. <laughs> Don't put a test in front of me. Right. I won't be able to tell you. I, I understand. So it, it just creates a really bad atmosphere, you know, and, and we just seem to be falling as a society further and further behind other countries. One reason is because we're teaching to tests. Another reason is we put much more emphasis and priority on entertainment than we do on education. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, and my, my prime example of this every four years, or well, I guess technically every two years, is look at the Olympics. Who is always in the top three medal winners? The United States. But yeah. then look at us across the world with mm -hmm. technology, mathematics, science. Where are we? Where are we in educating our children? usually toward the bottom yeah language uh, a lot of different things i mean we uh -huh. are bombing out when it comes to education uh -huh. yeah and, and a very good point and i'm gonna make parents mad because a lot of that comes from the parents they want all these sports they want all these extracurricular activities and they don't and, and again, like I said, you know, 10 or, or 12 years ago, a target was put on all teachers' backs because suddenly we didn't know how to teach and it was our fault. Mm -hmm. And we were not doing what we were supposed to be doing. And, you know, and that's the other thing. As teachers, <laughs> when I went to school and probably when you gentlemen went to school, you know, we had reading, we had math, we had English, we had science and social studies. And then, you know, maybe we had PE and and music and art class once or twice a week. Um, but now teachers are required to teach character traits. They're required to teach world information, current event, like be on top of it. Mm -hmm. They're required to teach how to behave. They're required to teach a lot of things that probably both your parents and my parents had as their responsibilities to teach us. Right, right. I so I, I, I do want to know, how did you look at my notes? Because I just wrote those things down. <laughs> so 
uh, one of the questions I had was, um, the, I, I, it is imagined that if a parent has a, a needs child, that they're going to be engaged, but that's not always the case. And, um, the, the involvement of the parent directly relates to the success of the child. Mm-hmm. So, so what it are we doing does. to engage those parents? Good question. It's an excellent question. Um, for some reason, as a society overall, if I mean, and like I said, last decade or so, it's felt like teachers are the bad guys. You know, teachers can't do anything right. And I don't know how exactly that came to be. And I, I was really pleased in a sense that the pandemic happened because people had to stop and take time with their families because they couldn't go anywhere. You know, all of those extracurricular activities stopped. Unfortunately, so did the school. <laughs> and so the parents were replacing the extracurricular activities, those that were able to work or did go to work, you know, could go to work, um, were replacing those extracurricular activities with doing school because that was the only time they could do it. But um, I'm, I'm hoping that some of what happened during the pandemic of that slowdown of that, you know, there was a lot of appreciation that came out for teachers and what teachers do on a daily basis because parents are like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't, what was I, you know? Right. So I hope that some of those little nuggets that were positives will continue to ruminate with people and they'll continue to appreciate what teachers do and how much effort teachers are giving every day. I've, I've never in my over 25 years of education, seen teachers so exhausted as I did this year. And I've seen teachers exhausted because I've seen teachers who put in a hundred hours a week for their classroom and their students. But this was a hundred hours a week, all last summer, the spring before, all through this school year. And now they're starting to think about next school year and what do we have to do for next school year and there's there's just not been a break for the teachers or anybody to be honest but you know my heart is with teachers (laughs) i'm i'm a teacher through and through Through, yes um, i can see that (laughs) so we've kind of we've kind of reached that that moment i don't know if you had anything else that you i'm going to give you an opportunity to um, you know, give us the last nugget of information. I think this has been an extremely informative hour. Um, and so I, I want to make sure, again, I uh, share with you my appreciation for you coming and speaking with us. Absolutely. I very much enjoyed this. And it's interesting because I really didn't know what we were going to talk about. Um, I myself have two podcasts or, or video podcasts, however you want to call them. And um, I try to, to not surprise my guests with any information or, you know, and, um, and you did that, but I was like, okay, he's like, I hope we don't go into things. Like, I hope I don't go into tangents. So hopefully I didn't go into any tangents today that were not relevant. Um, I think if I was to give a piece of advice, it was to, it would be to remember that everyone, no matter what situation a person is in, is an individual. And to treat that person as a person and get to know that person that's in front of you. Okay. Her website is Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, Kino. Did I pronounce the last name correctly? Kino. Kino. K-E-N-O dot com. K-E-N-O-W Did I drop the W? You, you, you dropped it when you said it, but you have oh, it typed correctly. You know. Okay, very good. <laughs> yeah. Her book is Those Who Can't Teach True Stories of Special Needs Families to Promote <laughs> Acceptance, Inclusion, and Empathy. Again, thank you so very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having thank you me. very much. You're welcome. 
that concludes this episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.